So I have the distinct pleasure today to welcome Dr. Celeste Wallander to join us on a phone interview today. Dr. Wallander is the president of the U.S.-Russian Foundation and former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia from 2009 to 2012. She also served as Special Assistant to President Obama and Senior Director for Russia and Eurasia on the National Security Council from 2013 to 2017. Thank you so much for joining us today over the phone, Dr. Wallander. Thank you, Tiger. It's my pleasure. Awesome. And just before I begin asking you more questions specifically on Russia, would you mind giving us a little bit of background on your work at the U.S. Russian Foundation and also some of your general thoughts on Russia today, just to start us off? Sure. The um, U.S. Russia Foundation uh, is a grant-making nonprofit organization, uh, who, the mission of which is to help support the development of the private sector in Russia, meaning both the private uh, business sector, but also civil society, uh, rule of law, and people-to-people contacts between the United States and Russia, with the idea of investing in the kind of Russia that um, is uh, engaged in the international community, has a vibrant modern economy, uh, and actually is a great would be a great partner for the United States. Sort of the vision of what uh, Russia could be at the end of the Cold War. Um, the U.S.-Russia Foundation hasn't given up on the idea of that mission, despite uh, the difficulties in official relations between our countries. So it is an exciting mission. We make grants to universities, uh, to uh, different kinds of organizations that do exchanges and uh, training, uh, bringing especially next-generation Americans and Russians together who have similar interests and aspirations. And it's really an exciting post-government job for me. It really is wonderful. Awesome. So I remember you delivered a talk in Princeton last October uh, titled Russian Foreign Policy in an Era of Global Change. I actually went to the talk and uh, was really fascinated by the ideas that you put forth. And you um, described today's Russia as revisionist and revanchist. And what do those terms mean? I guess a lot of our listeners probably wouldn't be familiar with those terms. And uh, I guess what is the country's current state right now? Mm-hmm. So um, so the technical, so let me answer the definitional question first. Normally in international relations, what we mean by a revanchist uh, government or country is one that seeks to change borders, existing borders. It's, um, you know, uh, either through invasion or through international law or, you know, whatever methods. Uh, it's a country that is not accepting uh, the existing status quo of where borders lie as recognized in international law and seeking to change those borders, either by appealing to historical claims or simply through the raw exercise of power. Um, revisionist refers uh, to changing the international rules of the game. Uh, that is, per, it could be the UN Charter, uh, it could be uh, the rules of the World Trade Organization. Usually what we're talking about is a, a package of international law, um, either written down law or a customary law, um, and seeking to change those rules. So for example, when Russia um, invaded Ukraine, first in Crimea, uh, and then in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass, Russia was acting both in a revanchist manner, that is, seeking to change uh, existing internationally recognized borders unilaterally, 
but also in a revisionist manner, um, challenging, for example, the UN Charter uh, that recognizes the sovereignty and territorial integrity and that borders cannot be changed through the use of force. If borders are going to be changed under international law, they need, it, they need to be changed through mutual agreement and legal procedures. So Russia is not uh, the only country in the world that currently is discontented uh, with territorial uh, setup um, and with international law, but it is certainly uh, many China experts point, for example, to China as similarly uh, revisionist, if not yet uh, directly revanchist. Uh, but Russia is certainly uh, the most, probably the most powerful and active um, international actor that has taken steps to try to uh, change the rules of the international uh, game, mostly by disregarding them uh, and arguing to change them and also to change borders through the use of force, particularly uh, in Ukraine, but also in 2008, Russia similarly uh, used military force to change borders uh, in its brief war with Georgia. Gotcha. And do you think this is just Putin's vision um, himself or that as a country there is this sort of revisionist vision to go back to the glorious Soviet Union times? I think that the there are large swaths of the Russian public that um, buy into the vision of a Russia that is great because it is uh, acting, I would say, not so much as the Soviet Union did, but more the historical imperial Russia of the uh, 17th, 18th, and 19th century, uh, the great expansion of Russia's imperial borders, including into the Caucasus, but also in, in reasserting control uh, of all of Ukrainian territory, for example, that Russians refer to, came in the 18th and 19th century. And so I think it actually goes back further in historical memory or image uh, to the Russian Empire. And the Soviet Union basically inherited those borders, uh, but that's the real, real pull. It's a Russia, um, it's a great imperial Russia romance uh, on the part of a lot in Russian uh, society. But I do think that it's also contested because that kind of a Russian behavior is incompatible with how uh, countries are successful and prosperous in the 21st century because those kinds of countries, um, and, and China's beginning to experience this as well, tend to drive away foreign investors. Um, they tend, because you're not respecting the rule of law, uh, because it's unpredictable when there might be, you know, sort of changes in borders, because the political and economic leadership question uh, those international rules of the game, it raises the risks to private uh, investors and international business when they're thinking about where to build their factories, uh, you know, where to put their money and their investments. And Russia has seen a fall off in international business activity, some of which is attributable to the sanctions, so that's, a, that's an explicit uh, tool to, to impose costs on Russia, but also because of the, of the sense of atmosphere that the risks are too high. International businesses can make their money elsewhere, and so they're going to choose to make uh, investments in environments that are more politically uh, stable and less risky. And so this is actually contested within Russia, that this kind of great Russia imperialism, this hearkening back to this past, 
comes at a cost. And while that kind of imperialism was uh, one of the ways that countries became powerful and influential and wealthy in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, that is not really the way to uh, power and wealth in the 21st century, I think. Um, and, you know, who knows? It's a, it's a debate. But, I mean, I think the evidence is that countries that are welcoming environments uh, to uh, investment and trade tend to be better off. And there is a debate inside of Russia on that, the price of this kind of Russian imperialism. Got you. And just before uh, we um, go a little bit deeper on talking about Russia's current state, the, the economy, uh, I want to just go a little bit further about the Ukraine-Russia uh, sort of tension, especially there was this incident that captured international attention recently, the, the Kerch Strait incident, where Russia seized three Ukrainian ships, held 24 sailors in custody, uh, strictly limited traffic to Ukrainian ports on November 25th, 2018. Um, and you actually said in the At Atlantic Council on December 5th that Russia tactically won this dispute because the slow response and the sanctions from the international community um, would, would you like to further comment a little bit on the incident and, and just Russia-Ukrainian relations in, in, in general? Sure. So this, these tactics, these, you know, which are kind of classically called, uh, referred to as salami tactics, or uh, I cited a, a new phrase that people use, which is the, the Russian propensity to boil the frog, to, to raise the temperature slowly, and before you know it, you have a different, uh, a different and very dangerous situation, um, are all on display in, in Ukraine. So as a revisionist power, actually, the Kremlin doesn't always do something big and dramatic. It actually um, does quiet challenges to uh, borders, uh, to the rules of international uh, navigation, freedom of navigation, uh, to trying to change the, the reality on the ground to get everyone kind of used to the new status quo. So revisionism doesn't always come with a big bang of headlines. Revisionism can come, for example, in, in the South China Sea, Russia, uh, sorry, in the South China Sea, China adopted these tactics as well, slowly building um, artificial, artificial islands over a period of months and years to change uh, the kind of facts on the ground of where Chinese territorial waters lie. So what I was referring to in this instance was that in the Kerch Strait, what Russia is seeking to do is, in addition to asserting its actual control over Crimea proper, the peninsula uh, that was a part of the Russian Empire for a period of time, but then under international law is part of Ukraine and recognized as such, in addition to simply controlling the territory of that peninsula, Russia has, through these kinds of salami tactics, this boiling of the frog, been uh, trying to assert control of an, a territory called the Sea of Azov, a, a, a water right. territory, yeah. the Sea of Azov, which is, lies behind the Kerch Strait um, between Russia 
and Ukraine, and which under international law is a shared territorial water between Russia and Ukraine. But over many months, Russia had begun to uh, board Ukraine or demand uh, that Ukrainian ships and actually international shipping in the Sea of Azov be subject to Russian law and Russian supervision. And there was a period in time in which this didn't really get any attention. And I think the Kerch Strait uh, move to challenge Ukrainian ships, uh, which under international law have the right to transit the Kerch Strait and go into the Sea of Azov and to go into Ukrainian ports on Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainian coast. By challenging that, what Russia was trying to do was change in a de facto way uh, the status quo and, there, that, and therefore advance the goals of revisionism, which is to assert Russian territorial control over the Sea of Azov and the coastline around the Sea of Azov, which includes not just Crimea, but part of Ukrainian territory that isn't even occupied uh, by Russian forces and hasn't been uh, since the 2014 war. So it's about slowly changing the discourse around the, what, what the status quo is, the slowly boiling the frog, frog as, as you said. That's right, and the reality on the ground, because there is a, there is a most, much of international law, not all, much of international law is a law of custom, that is, it's not merely what is written down and agreed to and ratified in treaties by nation states. Um, a lot of international law, because it's not a national law, is a law based on custom. That is, the, how you've behaved over, how countries have behaved over decades or hundreds of years becomes recognized as uh, norms and then eventually customary international law. So by trying to change how countries have to operate, um, Russia, Russia seeks to claim, be able to claim that it has territorial rights in certain areas, in this case the Sea of Azov and the, and the Kerch Strait, because countries are in effect through their behavior observing it. Now they're not observing it, Ukraine and other international countries aren't observing Russian territorial claims on the, these areas because they choose to, but because of their behavior, Russia seeks to make the claim that customary international law is now considered with Russian interpretations, and that's a mechanism of revisionism. Again, not, not one that only Russia uh, exercises, but in this case, it, it was very much a classic uh, Putin-Kremlin operation. But how do you think the West, or just the world in general, should, should respond to this type of slow revisionist vision? Because I feel like it's, it's, it's very hard to respond to those type of slow aggression, those microaggression in, in very harsh terms like uh, starting a war or something, right? I, I think that would be, the escalation wouldn't seem very possible. You've exactly put your finger on the challenge, which is that um, the, one of the reasons why a revisionist power, and in particular Russia in this case, adopts this is that instead of a direct challenge, um, this kind of incremental change at any given point, countries not not incorrectly judge um, the costs of a, of a direct challenge to these actions to be uh, unacceptable. And in particular, you, you mentioned the notion that, you know, the United States might send ships to challenge Russian ships, which are closing the Kerch Strait, puts on U.S. decision makers the onus of deciding, is it really worth risking a clash, possibly a conflict, possibly a confrontation with Russian ships, and possibly worse than that, 
um, and the and it puts the onus. It, it's a very clever um, operation that puts the onus of escalation on uh, the other country. And the United States and European countries are not willing to challenge um, and risk that kind of escalation. The Ukrainians were. They made a judgment that uh, that they were going to assert the. Um, the, the freedom of navigation right for Ukrainian ships to enter the Kerch Strait into the Sea of Azov, but unfortunately, Ukrainian capabilities are, you know, not up to uh, Russian military capabilities, and they lost that that immediate confrontation. And in fact, even as they were seeking to withdraw, the Russian ships uh, pursued them, which kind of shows you the Russians were deliberately provoking the incident in order to make the point. Right. So it is a challenge uh, to be able to manage these incremental salami tactics or boiling the frog. And the way that um, the United States has chosen and did choose under the Obama administration uh, to challenge Russia is to challenge it asymmetrically. So instead of challenging Russian military intervention in Crimea and in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass militarily, um, the Obama administration instead developed a strategy of imposing costs on the Kremlin for these actions through sanctions and right. through uh, an effort to internationally isolate uh, the Russian leadership to kind of bring the costs home to the leadership and create disincentives for this kind of behavior. It worked in part. Um, it limited the escalation. Uh, it could have been a lot worse, and I think it's fair to say it was going to be a lot worse. The Kremlin chose to hold back on some of the more aggressive military actions that were in its uh, repertoire and it could have launched, um, but it didn't exactly solve the crisis either. It imposed enough cost to impose a political stasis on the crisis and create the space for political negotiations, but it didn't uh, reverse Russian actions. But do you think that the U.S. should, in a way, adopt a little bit more uh, aggressive or strong military action to, towards sort of this sort of Russian um, behavior, either directly with Russia or, uh, in a way, in a proxy war type of thing, like in in Syria, it's still demonstrating that the power? Because I remember. I think it's like uh, the German foreign minister, Sigmar Gabriel, said last year, last summer in the Munich Economic Conference or something, and he said that America has focused too much on soft power in the sense that, you know, developing economically or culturally, but to react to this type of Russian aggression or, or challenge to liberalism, we sometimes need hard power. Um, so do, do you agree with this type of... Um, conclusion? Well, I would first say that sanctions are not soft power. Sanctions are very hard power, and they do impose, uh, they're not military power, but they impose, uh, they can impose significant costs on a country, um, and there are many examples where it did. But let's let's go back to the main main question of whether the United States should be challenging Russia militarily everywhere. And no, I don't think the United States should be challenging Russia militarily everywhere. Where, Russia, where the United States should be ready to defend American interests with military means are in those areas and in those um, issues which are core to American national security. And one of the 
and so one of the hardest things about being in government is being able to be consistent in how you use your instruments in a responsible way in order to advance American national interests. And that means you always have to be referencing what is of most importance to you and worth the risk of uh, military conflict, including the prospect of um, nuclear war. And in the case of Russia's neighbors, its former Soviet neighbors, uh, or former Soviet uh, elements, which are now in neighboring countries, America has important interests uh, in in those areas, and it has significant interests in rule of law in the international community. But the judgment is that those are not vital national interests in the same way that uh, defending uh, America's, for example, European allies or Asian allies, Japan and South Korea, uh, would be. So distinguishing between important interests and vital interests that are worth risking all the way up to nuclear war is central to American national security policy. And I know this is painful and it's uncomfortable. It's painful for Ukrainians uh, to and have to be confronted right. with this, and it's uncomfortable for someone like me who has worked on Ukraine and, and believes that Ukraine deserves a prosperous and secure future. But Ukraine does not fall into that um, that area of American vital interests, okay. and so it is. It needs to be managed in a different way. Okay, that that makes sense. Uh, we you just mentioned the prospect of a potential nuclear war in the, in the case of escalation. But I, speaking of war, I, I think there's this theory that that says because of the invention of nuclear weapon and how globalized we are today, there's basically no way that another world war erupts between major superpowers because that would mean global annihilation. So politicians are smart enough to not bring us to, to the extinction of humanity. So we therefore will not have those sort of actual wars between U.S. and Russia. So do you still think that war between major countries like U.S. and Russia or Ukraine and Russia is still very likely impossible? Or um, would you, do you agree with that, the fact that having nuclear weapon and having that prospect there prevents everybody from doing so? I think if you, the evidence, the historical evidence uh, from centuries of war is it is very difficult to find many wars uh, that uh, decision makers wanted. Most wars are a result of small steps uh, that decision makers convince themselves will not lead to further escalation, um, and they miscalculate, and those wars escalated. It's not true of every war. Um, certainly, World War II was deliberately embarked upon um, by uh, Hitler and Nazi Germany, although they intended to win, right. not lose, which is a different kind of miscalculation. Right. Um, but all of the evidence is that, for example, World War I was a war that uh, resulted from the overconfidence of decision makers in Europe that everyone else would back down. And I don't think there is any reason to be absolutely confident that in the modern world, decision makers will get it right. (laughs) And the risks are, and the costs would be so great of nuclear war that I think one needs to take uh, 
very seriously the possibility that decision makers would make miscalculations. So while I do think it is the case that most decision makers understand that the costs of miscalculation would be greater in the modern world than they ever were uh, in previous instances, I don't think we should get uh, complacent that it is so obvious that that kind of mistake or miscalculation couldn't happen because the costs of getting it wrong are, are so extraordinary. And I do worry that people get complacent and they don't study their history. And if you go back and study your history, you find out that decision makers often were complacent and they were wrong and they brought disaster down upon the world because of their miscalculation. So I think we need to be humble uh, and extremely cautious when we think about um, what actually happens as opposed to theoretical claims that it would be impossible. That's a wonderful point to make. And I guess looking sort of ahead, how do you envision the geopolitical landscape shaping up between Europe, the U.S., Russia, Ukraine, um, Eurasia, um, given in this context? Well, this comes, I think, most importantly, back to the fundamental question of Russian power and whether Russia stands as uh, a you know, sort of a global global power uh, on a par with the United States and China. And while at this point in time, Russia has, certainly has great power status and uh, Russia under the Putin leadership has reestablished uh, substantial Russian military capabilities, both conventional interventionary capabilities, conventional self-defense capabilities in the Eurasian landmass, and has renewed Russia's uh, nuclear capabilities and, in fact, has embarked upon a pretty uh, vigorous modernization program, which will result in the rolling out of a whole new generation of nuclear weapons in the coming decades. The fundamental basis of a country's national power is its economy. And, you know, you can't have a vigorous and capable military over the long run, uh, especially one in, in a period of extraordinary technological change, without a really strong economy. And the Russian economy is not strong enough to sustain Russia as a global great power, given the current trajectory. Now, I'm not saying that it couldn't change. It could. Were Russia to return to a path of integration in the international system, welcoming foreign investment, encouraging innovation uh, and technological advance within its economy, certainly all of the elements are there. Russia is a resource-rich country. It is an incredibly well-educated country. It has an enormous reserves of human capital. It is, uh, you know, close to Europe. It, it could have access to all kinds of benefits that would make it a vibrant, exciting economy uh, that could sustain Russia as a great power into the next part of the 21st century. But what has happened instead is that the Russian government, because of its political insecurity, has clamped down on foreign investment. It has clamped down on competition and entrepreneurship. It has undermined the rule of law within Russia, and it has become uh, a economy excessively dependent on uh, energy 
extraction and sale abroad, which is certainly a source of, of some wealth, but is not the basis for the kind of competitive growing economy in the 21st century that would sustain Russia as a global great power in decades to come. So Russia now, its, its economy in good years is growing at a rate of between 1% and 2%, which you know, for an uh, old, mature economy like the United States is fine, but for Russia, it's leaving it further and further behind as more vibrant emerging economies such as Brazil, such as India, and certainly China are storming ahead. So while you, you can look at Russia's growth rates, and if you compare them to Germany or the United States, you might be misled into believing Russia can sustain the kind of economy that would make it a great global great power in the 21st century. In fact, Russia is falling further and further behind. It's gone from being sixth in global GDP about a decade ago to being 12th, which still puts it 12th, but, but the, the trend is negative. And so I think the most important to think of, thing to think about in terms of future geopolitical competition is that unless Russia changes course, and that has to come from within. It has to come from the Russian political leadership, from Russian citizens, Russian business. Russia is going to become further and further left behind. Um, and I worry about that because I, I think that as a Eurasian power, Russia really is a fulcrum of geopolitics in the future. And increasingly, I don't think it's a, a country that will be able to play a constructive uh, stabilizing force in uh, global politics. So I guess the logic that you just presented is sort of like this, is that um, the, the future of geopolitics in Eurasia, Russia, U.S. really depends on Russia's e economic performance as well. But because its current course, internal policy, government corruption, uh, U.S. government sanctions, uh, it's, it's really keeping Russia behind, which I guess in a way might prevent Russia uh, from furthering its its aggression, but what what about the recent developments in the recent year or two when after Trump um, got elected? Are we seeing sort of kind of a, a strategic, long term strategic shift uh, in the sense that U.S. and Russia's relationship will become better, whereas Ru U.S. and China's relationship will get worse? Um, there's there's sort of a shift that. Um, directing the attention that used to be put on Russia to more focused on China. Do you think that's that's happening and that sort of shift will give Russia some breathing room and eventually um, help Russia reach that transformation that you just mentioned and you expected um, to, to happen? Well, it's certainly the case that American-Chinese relations have become uh, more complicated and less positive uh, I don't know that that is the Trump administration per se. I think that these are fundamental strategic shifts, and especially that um, China, it's not just China's growing power, but it's that China is a growing power, that it's using its power for revisionism. I think the, the strategy of U.S. policy through several administrations was to recognize China was a rising power and to seek to uh, integrate Russia, uh, China into the international system as a positive stakeholder and a constructive stakeholder. So it's not the rise of Chinese power per se that was the challenge. It was what China would use that power for. And I think the view now is that China is using that power 
um, for revisionist goals and goals that uh, negatively affect U.S. national security. So that is true. I, I think that's still an open story about how that relationship will be managed. But, but you're right that U.S.-Chinese relations have taken a negative turn. But that doesn't mean that U.S.-Russia relations are going to take a positive turn because many of the same reasons why U.S.-Russia, U.S.-China relations have taken a negative turn are are present in uh, Russia's challenge to American national interests. These revisionist elements, uh, or more than elements, these revisionist drivers of Russian national security. So uh, the assumption that a lot of people seem to have that because U.S.-Chinese relations have become more complicated and more negative, that this will lead to a more positive U.S.-Russia relationship, I, I don't understand that. Um, that there, it, it could be, but it's not foreordained and it's not inherently logical. Um, the challenges that, that Russia poses to U.S. national interests in Europe are significant and can't simply be swept under the rug or ignored simply because uh, we have a difficult relationship with China. And even more fundamentally, um, Russia is, has been a direct challenge to American national interests by interfering in our elections, uh, by, you know, through all the means, whether those were um, social media efforts to affect the information America, available to American voters, to try to infuse money into the American political process, um, you know, a whole host of ways that it's not merely a theoretical matter of the United States sort of defending our European allies. It's about the United States defending ourselves against Russian revisionism. And so I don't see how that can be put aside in a little box for some abstract idea that better U.S.-Russia relations would help us cope with a challenging China. I think that right. is really right. facile and simplistic, and I just don't understand when people make that argument. Totally makes sense. But, but And you don't think that the current response, however we respond to Russia, it's not just determined by... Trump or his vision, but but rather that it's our country as a whole. There's this sort of strategic consensus against revisionism, against this sort of aggression. So this is something I have been telling Russians since early 2017, when they were all excited and happy about right, the outcome of the elections, <laughs> and this is going to change everything. And I would say, wait, wait, hold on, guys, time out. You know, in, a, in an authoritarian regime or, or some kind of regime in which the leadership is not subject to checks and balances and executes the policy that is in the interest of the regime, not the national interest, yeah, that can happen. You can get a foreign policy that can turn on a dime and advance the ideas of, you know, a, a leader who is not accountable or not subject to checks and balances. The United States is still a democracy. <laughs> it's still a constitutional democracy. Um, the president of the United States is still subject to the Constitution, still has to follow the rule of law, right. still is subject to congressional appropriations uh, and uh, legislation, and is still constrained by the American voter, public opinion, and in general, you know, our country, and has to serve the national interest. And early in 2017, I warned a lot of Russians, I said, just wait. It's not going to be that uh, simple 
for uh, what you think to be this epic turn uh, in uh, U.S. policy. And I think uh, I think I've been oh, well. I'm not the only one who thought this. Anyone who understood American politics and American democracy, you know, knew that this was going to be the case. And that's exactly what we've seen. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.